0: Welcome to Midday Magazine for December 27th, I'm Jordan Lewis. The Arctic Report Card came out earlier this month. It's the Scientific Community's Annual Report on the Climate Health of the Region. This year, it includes a new chapter on the way climate change is impacting Alaska Native communities in the Arctic. And the chapter's authorities are calling for more collaboration between scientists and indigenous experts. KTOO's Anna Kenny has more.
1: In September, the remnants of Typhoon Murbok lashed the coast of western Alaska with 50-foot waves and hurricane-force winds.
2: Just changed the environment in, in a way that we didn't expect it to happen.
1: Vera Kingakut Metcalf witnessed Murbok firsthand from her home in Nome. The storm brought severe flooding to communities along the Bering Sea. Hunting camps were wiped out, fall hunts were delayed, and power outages caused losses of meat that was already gathered. It's just one example of the way climate change is threatening Alaska Native communities in a rapidly warming Arctic. Metcalf and a team of more than 40 scientists and indigenous experts wrote about Murdoch and other climate impacts in a new chapter for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's annual Arctic Report Card, which came out this week. Indigenous food systems and traditions in the Arctic are tied to a cold, icy environment. The science in this year's report card shows that those conditions are now harder to rely on, more rain and less ice are making food resources scarcer and harder to get to. Metcalf says sea ice, Siku and Yupik, characterizes the seasons in the Arctic.
2: It's a very powerful presence in our relationship with our world. It really defines our seasons and activities. And uh, right now, in here in Nome, we don't have sea ice yet, and it's the middle of December.
1: According to the report, sea ice continues to form later across the Arctic, and its summer extent in 2022 was much lower than the long-term average. That leaves coastal communities vulnerable to storms like Murbach. It also threatens food security.
2: Uh, traditional hunting seasons seem to be dissolving and blending together. You know, hunter safety. Our hunters are traveling further uh, with less sea ice and disruptive, stormy weather during some of our hunting trips.
1: Changes in precipitation can threaten indigenous food systems, too. This year was the third wettest year on record for the Arctic, and more and more precipitation is coming as rain instead of snow. Freezing rain events are a special threat. The resulting ice layer can disrupt foraging for important species like caribou. Metcalf says she learned a lot from collaborating with scientific researchers on the report. But she adds that bringing the two knowledge systems together can be challenging.
2: How this actually happens is can be complicated because indigenous knowledge and signs should not be used, for example, to verify each other.
1: One thing Metcalf and her colleagues emphasize is the importance of including more on-the-ground observations from indigenous knowledge holders in future reports.
2: Our own experts are living the environment, are there seeing the changes happening in our waters and our lands and often are the first to report these unusual changes.
1: The chapter takes a more holistic approach than the rest of the report. It doesn't focus on one particular year. Rather, it acknowledges the compounding impacts of climate change.
2: It's a ripple effect. It impacts the people. It impacts their traditional lifestyle. And then it impacts what's coming the next season.
1: Jackie Catalina Schaefer is the Director of Climate Initiatives at the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. She's also a co-author on the new chapter. Despite the profound changes in the Arctic, both Metcalf and Schaefer say indigenous values around food prevail.
2: We don't say, um, and we definitely don't think it and put it out into the universe that there's not going to be any berries. We hope,
1: we live on that thread of hope, That there's going to be berries whether they show up or not. Schaefer believes this new chapter in the arctic report card is a way to infuse more of that hope into conversations about climate change in the arctic. The narrative if you just focus on the science and the monitoring could be very scary and we don't want to be scared the authors hope to expand their contribution in future editions of the arctic report card and throughout the rest of the year they are working to combine science and indigenous expertise on projects that will help alaska native communities adapt to a new arctic in juneau i'm anna Kenny.
0: wrangell's borough assembly has set aside just over 2.2 million to begin development of a new housing subdivision the location is the site of a former boarding school for alaska native children. But as KSTK's Sage Smiley reports, there are many unanswered questions about how to move forward with the project.
3: Wrangell's housing market is cramped, and local officials see the 134 acre former Wrangell Institute property as a way to relieve the pressure.
4: There's a high need right now for housing, um, and we don't have a whole lot of opportunities to be able to, to provide lots for housing, and this would do it.
3: Borough Manager Jeff Good told Assembly members at a December 20th meeting that developing lots at the site is a very important investment. The borough has held the property since the late 1990s. The boarding school closed in 1975.
4: So, recommendation um, from administration is that we we make commitment to to get this out to the public and get these lots sold, then um, try to recoup some of that money back so that we can then develop the second phase.
3: The first phase of development will bring water, sewer, and electricity to 20 new lots at the site of the former Bureau of Indian Education boarding school. It'll also rough in roads for the second phase of development. The subdivision will be named Aldertop Village after the historic Tlingit place name Gitaon. The design for the subdivision is already about a third of the way through the process with Ketchikan-based R&M Engineering. Once the design is complete, the borough will be able to request bids for construction. Good explained funding for development is a mishmash from the community's water, sewer, and electric funds, as well as about $1.5 million from sales taxes.
4: As far as the distribution of how that will be funded. Um, because they're enterprise funds that will benefit directly from that as well. That It's whatever enterprise funds are required, like sewer or water, they'll take in a portion of that for whatever it is. That's how the funds are distributed out as far as how the work would be allocated.
3: Wrangell's Assembly unanimously approved the funding, but some had questions and concerns. Assemblymember Jim DeBoard noted that Wrangell's utility capacity, especially for the sewer system, might not be able to support 20 new houses without upgrades.
5: As part of this, we need to have some type of a bigger plan to make sure that the infrastructure we have now is also usable for out there. I don't want to build an entire community and then our water pipes fail internally and now we built this brand new subdivision and can't provide water for them.
3: The board also noted Wrangell is an aging community. Many seniors who already receive a major property tax break don't live in town year round. That could cramp the borough's return on investment if people who aren't living in town snap up the properties, he said.
5: I don't know how you even address this, but I just have this... Fear that it turns into some type of a retirement community, and then you have people who live here half the year and don't pay taxes half the year, and then when they're here, it's a residence that they're exempt from property tax on. So it's a pretty big investment. I I don't know how you mitigate that, or if you can. It's just a a concern. Jeff was just talking about how many people have turned off their water to go down south for the for the winter. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's they're not. It's city market or Bob's buying groceries or fuel or, you know, they're not here. So
3: just a concern I have going forward. Borough officials said they're still working on cost estimates for exactly what will be able to be developed with the money. It's not clear yet, for example, whether it might be possible to wire the subdivision underground instead of having electric lines above the ground. Above ground lines have caused days-long blackouts for parts of town as recently as last winter. Assemblymember Dave Powell said he'd approve a bit more funding if it meant more attractive lots.
0: I mean, if we're talking, you know,
5: $50,000, difference to put everything on this thing underground, I mean, anybody that lives in, on this hill that looks this way can mm-hmm. attest
1: exactly. that.
5: They'd really like to have some wires out of their view, but I mean, same situation. I would just like to, if we're going to do something like this, I would like to make it appealing for people to buy the
3: property. Assembly members also discussed the possibility of setting aside lots for green areas. And although it wasn't mentioned at the meeting, Wrangell's tribal government has discussed placing a memorial for native children from all over the state who attended the Wrangell Institute somewhere at the site. The borough has been working toward a new housing development at the site since 2016, but the process was paused in the spring of 2021 after the remains of more than 200 indigenous children were found on the grounds of a boarding school in Canada. Borough officials say they hope to receive a conditional permit from the Army Corps of Engineers early next year. And if project milestones are met without much delay, they say construction could begin as early as next summer. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley.
0: 17 members of the Devil's Thumb Shooters team attended a regional tournament in Juneau in October. Most athletes placed at the tournament and are looking forward to their next one in Anchorage next June. KFSK's Avery Herrmann-Sakamoto talked with the team to discuss their experience.
6: Hi, I'm Kaden Turland. I've been shooting for about... Six years now. I started all the way back when I was like nine years old in the uh, first Juno tournament. That was actually my first tournament, so this was like my six-year anniversary, which was pretty nice.
2: How did you do in Juno?
6: Um, I matched my scores last year, which I wasn't really too proud of. I kind of shot a little badly for my capability, but it's all right. Like I can just fix it up in Anchorage and my state, uh, my shoot down in Florida for the state team, and uh, I think it was February.
2: Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
6: So I recently signed up for the Alaska YES Foundation shooting team. It's led by Lindy, who runs, like, the Alaska shotgun shooting program. The things I had to do for the – to actually make the team were pretty challenging. Of course, with my mom helping me out, I was able to get through it pretty easily. Like, I had to be recommended by a bunch of people. I had to have a bunch of community service, grades and all that. But – the shoot is going to give me a chance to see collegiate capabilities and to meet recruiters for college teams. It'll give me a chance to really explore the whole shooting world outside of just Alaska. Uh, my name is Peyton
7: Dreisbach and I have been shooting for about three months. How was the tournament for you? Uh, pretty well. I got like usually 10th or 11th place in most of the rankings.
2: And what does the
7: competition look like? Um, There's multiple divisions in the competition. And then there is, uh, let's see here, there's multiple divisions. So there's like novice, intermediate, junior varsity and senior varsity, and there's girls and boys divisions. So I was in junior varsity for boys and there was like 30 something kids and so there were several different versions of the competition which was singles wobbles doubles and sporting clays while Wo- singles was they would launch it they would launch a bird out of the machine a clay pigeon and you would have to shoot it wobbles was it would launch in a random direction doubles was it w- they would launch two at the same time and sporting clays was There'd be three different launchers set up, and they'd all be launching in di- different directions.
6: I am Thomas Slavin. I've been shooting for two years, going on my third next year. Um, I've been up to state and Juno twice. Juno this year, I got came home with four trophies. My probably my best shooting, and I came home with a plaque too. Really nice. I'm in men's novice. Not there's only three of us this year for men's novice. And for girls' novice, there's only, I think, one or two.
1: My name is Edalyn Turlin, and I've been shooting for one year. And what do you think of it so far? It's pretty fun. I'm I'm the only girls' novice, so. And what does that mean? It's a category of shooting level, and I'm on the lowest one because I'm one of the youngest. And I'm the only girl in it. What has your experience been like this year? I thought that it was really cool that it was only girls shooting against three other boys. I didn't win against them, but I did get an automatic first place in a lot of things that I shot in because it was just an automatic because I was the only one.
8: Alright, I am Malcolm Fry, and this is my first year shooting and also it will probably be my last since I'm a senior in high school. So,
2: How did the tournament go for you?
8: It was really fun, although (laughs) I did not win any awards or prizes. After the first night of the tournament, what happened was we did Annie Oakley. We all line up in a line, and then they shoot out one clay. And then we all have shells, and if the first guy misses, then the next guy goes, and it goes along that same route, if that makes sense. On that, since we were at the very back 30-yard line, and when we were at that line, They launched out a clay pigeon, and because I was using (laughs) modified choke, I was extremely surprised I hit uh, one that went very far out using that modified choke because the 30-yard line is 30 yards behind the very front of the shooting area, if that makes sense. That was a very hard but also a very awesome shot because it was really cool.
0: That was the Devil's Thumb Shooters team speaking with KFSK's Avery Herman Sakamoto. For KFSK, I'm Jordan Lewis.